Policy is one of those words that make people think of facts and figures and dry, boring statistics. Today's guest proves that vision wrong. Renee Kuhlman, the Director of Policy Outreach for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, works with preservationists around the country to effect real and meaningful change and has been involved in a multi-year campaign to protect historic tax credits, one of the most important tools available to the preservation community. Renee makes policy about people, not an easy task, but a critical one, and a job we'll explore on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Renee Kuhlman, who is the Director of Policy Outreach for the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Since 2006, she's been assisting legislators and advocates across the country with the adoption, expansion, and protection of state-level historic rehab tax credit programs. Renee also works on the campaign to protect and expand the federal historic tax credit, as well as the effort to put in place dedicated funding for maintaining historic resources in the national parks. In her 19 years at the National Trust, Renee has provided advocacy training, written articles, blogs, briefs on policy issues, and developed close working relationships with preservation advocates across the country. Prior to her work at the Trust, while serving as the executive director of the historic Fredericksburg Foundation, Renee successfully helped defend George Washington's boyhood home from a planned Walmart development. Renee, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Great. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, um... You know, I feel like policy is it can be one of those things that people are like, oh, that kind of sounds boring. But you, you really have been able to take policy, which can be boring, and pull people from all across the country into this and, and make it something that's really more about people. What was your path to all of this? Did you, you know, wake up one day as a senior in high school and say, I want to get into preservation policy? <laughs> when I was in seventh grade, we took a field trip to uh, across different historic sites in Virginia. And when I learned that you could go to college next to Colonial Williamsburg, I was bitten by the history bug and uh, have been wanting to work in the field of history ever since and saving historic sites. And it's funny, when I was in college, I actually drove by the National Trust for Historic Preservation building, which was then at around DuPont Circle. And I was like, one day I am going to work there. And here I am many years later <laughs> working for them. So yeah, you didn't even work there one day. You've worked there 19 years now. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting. And uh, I think what you're talking about in trying to get people energized about policy is because it's one of the best ways that folks can actually preserve and protect the places that matter to them. So it's a tangible way that they can they can do that. So that's why I get enthusiastic about it. Particularly if they're like me and they can't really swing a hammer. It's a it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a good way to try and make a difference. <laughs> right. I 
went to grad school in historic preservation, and you know when they had me looking through the microscope at the different sand granules to try and match the mortar, I said, "Okay, there has got to be a different role for me in preservation." So. <laughs> Unfortunately, there was. So, what was your first job? How did you? So, you came out of where did you? So, just for people who know, like where did you go to school? You were describing the school, but tell us a little bit about sure. where you went and then what your first job was out of college. Sure. So I went to the University of Vermont's preservation program, and at the time I was working for a shipping company, and I would come in on Mondays and explain how I'd gone to the Smithsonian and had these great experiences looking at some of the you know, artifacts, or I'd go on a trip and come back and tell them about it, and they, were, they had no idea what I was talking about. And so I said, I've got to get myself to grad school. And the question that I could not figure out was how to read the architecture of a specific place. I would see all these buildings, but I wouldn't be able to string it together in a narrative. And so that's actually what I enjoyed most about grad school, was they dropped us off in a town and you had to actually be able to read the architecture and read the history of the town through through what was left. So That was in Vermont where you got that the, the graduate degree? Yeah. Yeah, it was. So... It was cold. It looked just like home in Southwest Virginia. The mountains looked very similar, but covered in a lot more snow. (laughs) And so where did you end up working after that experience? So I went to Historic Fredericksburg Foundation, where I started off as the special uh, events person and then worked my way up to being director of the, the foundation. And tell us a little bit about that kind of work. I mean, that's 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 sort of hyper-local preservation work, but you got involved in a big national campaign. Um, was that the first time that that organization had been involved in something that big? Right, and I think it was just a um, lucky circumstance because the uh, plans to build a Walmart adjacent to the boyhood home of George Washington, which, by the way, is an archaeological site, really took people by surprise, but they made the announcement uh, before President's Day. So a lot of the local Classy. news... Classy. <laughs> yeah, very, very local national news based out of D.C. were looking for stories, and they were pitched, you know, this David and Goliath story, and it was very appealing. And from that moment on, the campaign just sort of took off. But that was my first involvement in, in an advocacy campaign, and it was quite intense, and it was successful. The Walmart moved down the road of peace, and now there is a, a reconstruction of um, the George Washington boy at home on the site. Now, do you make it back there often? Just curious. I mean, you've obviously been away for a long time, but does it still hold sort of a special place in your heart? Oh, I, I think there's nothing prettier than downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. I, I love that historic place. It's a great place to visit. Well, maybe we'll get to that later when we talk about favorite historic site and place. I feel like maybe there's a uh, little of a precursor there to that, to the answer to that question. But so you moved on from how long were you with Historic Fredericksburg? Um, I think I was there about three years total. And we hosted uh, a preservation leadership training institute. And the National Trust uh, was holding them around the country at the time. And so I got to participate in that. And then they had a position open in their conference office and asked me if I would apply for it. And I said, sure, I'll apply. And and uh, that was my first job at the National Trust. Yeah. And 19 years later, the, the story continues. So your first job was in the events side. And that didn't. How long did you do that? And then now maybe give people a sense for what you what you do now and your, your title and, and what that all entails. Sure. 
So my first job at the National Trust was helping plan the National Preservation Conference, and I did the educational content, including all the field sessions. And I told the then-president, Richard Moe, that I think I actually had the best job at the National Trust because I would be uh, picked up at a hotel and taken to see some of the country's best preservation projects while I tested all the tours. And uh, it, it was really a, a wonderful time in my life, and I spent seven years doing that. So it was it was pretty re- remarkable. But then I wanted to take that experience and those relationships and, like I said, turn that into concrete policies that um, had big implications for saving, you know, historic sites. And so you've been working for a long time now. Um, you, I, I sort of would imagine that you know more about state and federal historic tax credits than maybe anyone else out there. I mean, you you live in the weeds of state historic tax credits. When anybody needs anything to know about historic tax credits, it's like, well, I guess we should call Renee. I mean, because <laughs> you're like the keeper of the keeper of the flame in terms of historic tax credits. And so, for someone who has no idea what a historic tax credit is. What the heck is a historic tax credit and why should we care about them? Sure. So uh, tax credits are one way that governments are laying the playing field so that a lot of the investment is not being directed to farmland and green uh, green spaces to turn into uh, new towns. It's actually a way for governments to redirect some of the Um, private capital towards our already built environments. And so a tax credit is an actual credit against a tax that you pay for doing a certified rehabilitation of a certified historic building. And the states have put in place their own versions of what the federal government does as well. The federal government has a tax credit Um, That's for income-producing property, and there are states that also have adopted that but then taken it one step further and put in place credits for homeowners. So if they renovate their historic home, then they can get a credit off their, their state taxes. Now, do you have any idea, and I'm sure you do, because I know you're working on some things right now about this, but like, what's the universe of state historic tax credits? I mean, you know... 15, 20 years ago, there weren't very many of them at all. Any idea, like percentage-wise, how many, or out of the 50 states, how many actually have them now? Correct. There are 35 states that offer this type of incentive and 23 states that offer uh, ones for historic homeowners, or for owners of historic homes. So it's quite a a big swath of the country. Most of them are uh, East Coast and Midwest. And there are efforts to try and get them in place in Western states as well. There was a heartbreaking situation in California a few years ago where the state legislature adopted it unanimously, both in the House and in the Senate, passed a state historic tax credit bill for the state of California. And it was vetoed on the last day by the governor. Again, classy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. uh, Disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for people who do know a little something about tax credits, and there may be some listeners who are are familiar with these, um, there's some myths out there that I want to give you a chance to to knock down once and for all. So, Renee, 
I bet these projects would just get done without tax credits anyway. This is just, you're just giving money to developers. Isn't that true? <laughs> if that were true, then all of the buildings that we care about would be renovated right now. Um, these projects require a lot of financing in order to get done. Rehab is not for the faint of heart, and it is not inexpensive. As any homeowner knows who's undertaken their own renovation projects, when you get into these, there's a lot more uh, unexpected surprises than you probably planned for. So renovation in and of itself is expensive. And I'll give you an example from um, the home of the Green Bay Packers up in Wisconsin. Uh, the community there had a uh, hotel that they had been trying for years to get renovated. Um, they have a lot of visitors, obviously, coming to the games, and they had this vacant and underutilized property that they wanted to get renovated. And the economic development officer kept showing this to different developers, saying, can you please you know, undertake this project? And in every case, they said, we cannot make this pencil out. We're not going to be able to renovate it and, and actually be able to have a return on our investment. And so the folks there decided we needed to make a change to their state tax credit, uh, which they did successfully. And now that project, not only that project has gotten done in Wisconsin, but a lot of other historic properties have been made. But developers time and time again will say, you know, we need the state incentive in order to to make the project pencil out. So speaking of the return on investment, the other big myth that you hear a lot is that because of this investment, these projects cost more than they ever return to the taxpayer. They're just a drain on taxpayer resources. Well, I find that really interesting because when you look at different um, states around the country, you'll see that almost a third to between 33 cents and 40 cents on the dollar is coming back to the state before they actually even put a dollar out themselves. Before the state is spending a dollar, they're getting about you know a third of their investment back just through the construction, just through the taxes on materials, taxes on labor. So they're already getting a lot of that back. And that you can see when you look at state studies done uh, for example, in Wisconsin and others and who looked at it individually. There was a developer in North Carolina who did his own chart and figured out how much the state is getting back just during the construction period. But then when you actually put the building, place it in service, then you're getting a return on your investment. The state is getting back, and it pays differently for each project. Because if you have a hotel with a restaurant and all the different taxes that are being generated by those employees, by those visitors, even the parking garage, so you have a lot of those taxes that pays back a lot more quickly than, for example, if you turned it into an apartment building and you only had you know, a couple of staffers working there. Right. But on average, the state is getting back their money totally between four to, say, 10 years out, depending upon of the project. So it eventually pays back and then the state is continuing to get those taxes back. Yeah, it's a good deal all around. I, I don't believe with any of the myths that I just threw at you, um, but <laughs> but we wanted to get them out there. And, and I mean, those myths 
but also the the good facts behind all of this played a big and important role in the recent big national fight to save the federal historic tax credit. So I know you work a lot on the state side, but it was sort of an all hands on deck moment when it came to the feds. How important were were those relationships that you have at the local level? What kind of role people think federal policy and they're like, ah, well, I bet National Trust is a lobbyist and they just got to do that work. We can't I mean, you know, we can't impact federal work. But I think people might be surprised to know how involved local groups were in saving the credit. So give us a sense, like, would it have happened if there weren't local groups? To what role did those local groups and and locals across the country play in saving the federal tax credit? Well, I personally would would say it was it would have been impossible to save without those. And I think that the lobbyists who were working on on this issue, and there were many lobbying groups um, who were working on this, really felt that it was important to have that one-two punch that they themselves could go up to the you know legislators and say you know we think this is important and this is the reason why, but it wasn't until the the um, legislator actually heard from someone back home and said, this is important to me, and here's why it's important to us and our community, Um, and especially here in your district. I think without that, um, I don't think that the Federal Historic Tax Credit would have been saved. So any any bright spots? I mean, I know you don't want to single out groups as being, um, you know, the most important, but any any groups out there or states out there that just did a really bang-up job that people might want to take a look at? Sure. Well, I'm, you know, the, the um, advocacy that was done by folks in Wisconsin um, and the educational effort that they put towards educating Speaker Ryan was amazing. I think at one time they had a letter that had over 500 different organizations that they sent in, including about over 100 uh, mayors from around the state. I think they had almost every economic development agency um, and entity um, signed onto that letter. So that was pretty remarkable. But then I would also say what you guys did in Preservation Maryland with educating Senator Cardin um, and all the other congressional folks were very important. I mean, Senator Cardin being the one who put forth, you know, one of the original sponsors of the Historic Tax Credit Improvement Act. Well, it wasn't a leading question for us to get a compliment, but I I do appreciate (laughs) it. But I know our friends in Louisiana did a tremendous amount of work as well. Oh, yes. I I would say that the the preservation groups in the five states where the bill was – the historic tax credit was actually saved on the Senate side. The House voted to eliminate the historic tax credit, even though there were very strong champions in the House that spoke out quite – frequently and vehemently on saving the credit. But it was actually, you know, the the five senators on the Senate Finance Committee who spoke out for saving the federal historic tax credit and all those advocates, whether it was in Kansas or Georgia, Louisiana, South Carolina, those were the ones that that really had made a strong case to their senators that this was important to save. So speaking of federal policy, another big thing that you've worked on, because apparently you, you, they, you don't have enough, so they just keep giving you other, <laughs> other part, just a little one, which is the, what, the $12 billion backlog of funding for the national parks. So in your spare time, um, have you fixed that? What's going on? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, which I didn't know until a few years ago, the National Park Service has an $11.6 billion backlog in deferred maintenance. And as we know, since we're all preservationists, um, 
that if you don't fix the problem, you don't fix the leak in the roof, uh, you're just going to have to pay more expensive repairs later on. So there has been great effort um, by the National Parks Conservation Association, the Pew Charitable Trust, the National Trust, to get introduced bipartisan legislation that would help find dedicated funding to fix the problem. And it was a great start with the National Park Service Legacy Act. It was um, very, very successful. Um, And the administration took note, and now there is a compromise bill um, that has been introduced both in the House and in the Senate. And in the House, H.R. 6510 um, was actually introduced by House Natural Resources Committee Chairman Rob Bishop, who is a Republican from Utah, along with Ranking Member um, Grijalva. So it is probably the first piece of legislation that they have both been on, and it's just shows that it is a very bipartisan, very important issue. For example, if they get these bills passed in the 115th Congress and the administration has said that they would be willing to support these uh, fixes, it would be almost the largest investment in our nation's parks uh, since 1966. And I will also say that there is... um, 47% of the backlog is cultural and historic places. So that's why preservationists should care. It's not just, you know, keeping the parks accessible and having good roads to our parks. It's actually taking care of some of our nation's most important historic and cultural resources. So if people want to get involved in that, because that's like a current thing, um, where can they find out more info? How should they get engaged? What's the best thing to do at this moment? So right now we have uh, folks who are being called to action. And if you go to the Preservation Leadership Forum website, forum.savingplaces.org, and search under Deferred Maintenance, um, there's a way for you to get in uh, contact with your senators and representatives asking them to co-sponsor this bipartisan bill. And which is fantastic. Anything else coming up that people should know about? I mean, you got the bipartisan bill. You've got historic tax credits that you're working on. Any big campaigns on the local state historic tax credit side? Anything people should keep keeping an eye out for? Sure. So I'm working on uh, with my colleagues a booklet for state legislators on state historic tax credit. So if you are working on either improving your state tax credit or protecting your tax credit or working to put one in place, um, hopefully this will be a resource for you to share with your state legislators to help them understand the benefits of these programs. And how soon can we expect to see that? Well, good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. We're hoping November. Well, that's pretty exciting. We're going to hold you to that and have you back for a, for a release episode, Renee. Knock on wood. (laughs) So in the broader sense, how can people want to learn more about the work the National Trust is doing on the advocacy side, on the policy side, on all the issues that you're working on uh, and that your partners and peers in the department are working on? Where can they find out more information? How can they get engaged? So the best place to go to is forum.savingplaces.org. And that has uh, all of the policy issues that we're, we're talking about, whether it's state tax credits, federal tax credits, deferred maintenance, all the policy issues. It gives you both background and then a way to take action. 
Fantastic. Well, as soon as they get this Park Service maintenance backlog bill done, we're going to have to talk to your folks over there at the Trust about giving you another massive project to work on because it seems like everything, <laughs> you, everything you touch seems to resolve itself. So that's good news. Well, let's hope it resolves itself in a positive way. Well, let's hope that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, before we let you go, um, the most difficult question we ask of anyone, your favorite historic place or site? Mm. I know this is going to sound cheesy, but I'd have to go back to the one I first visited in seventh grade and say Colonial Williamsburg. I love that place. I think it's a, a great, great place to visit. And every time I go, I see something new. So I'd have to say that. Although I will have to say ice cream place would be Carl's in Fredericksburg because they still have the original machines that they make the ice cream with from the 1920s. And there's always a line around the block. So I'd have to put in a plug for Carl's as well. Yeah, I've been to both, and I, I'm cool with both answers. So <laughs> Usually is based on whether it's food and historic. Yeah, well, that's the, tri- you know, that's, that's the, the dual, you know, food and historic. Spot. And Yeah, maybe, maybe next, next uh, season we'll, we'll do your favorite historic food site. That's a, yeah, that'd be a good that one. Yeah, that would be good. Well, that would be good. Well, Renee, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for all the fantastic work that you're doing out there. It's good to know people like you have the preservation communities back, uh, and we're Great. looking forward to hearing all the good news coming out of your shop in the coming weeks and months. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.